Welcome to the What We Talked About in Class podcast, brought to you from the campus of Wayne Community College in Goldsboro, North Carolina, sponsored by the Foundation of Wayne Community College. Right. Yeah. Print money, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I got to tell you, you and I are like are jamming on the same like frequency because, <laughs> yeah, because I talk about this stuff every week. And what she's alluding to is when the government prints money with no real value behind it, it debases our cash supply. What that means is if inflation happens at 2% and just continues to happen and you take $1,000 and put it in the savings account, after 10 years, it's worth 20% less. After 20 years, it's worth 40% less because of that 2% that chips off every year. Man, you think, well, I still got the $1,000 there, so why is it not worth 1000 Well, it is worth 1000 Guess what? It buys 40% less after 20 years. So you know how a can of Coke used to cost a nickel. Now it's $0.50 cent, you know, or more. Um, my parents used to tell me about candy bars they would get for a nickel. And now they're, you go buy a Hershey bar, it's 99 cent, right? Or, yeah, yeah, or more, right? And part of the reason for that is inflation. And so um, things like gold and silver and Bitcoin are are deflationary hedges against inflation. And so what happens is, let's say this is a bar of gold. When you buy that bar of gold, as inflation occurs and prices go up, that bar of gold also goes up in value. And so when you switch it back over to cash, you're selling it hopefully at a higher price in higher inflated dollars at, at that time. So same example, let's say you took that $1,000 instead of putting in a savings account, you bought that bar of gold. Well, it might be worth 40% more in 20 years. So instead of selling it at a, uh, instead of leaving that cash with a 40% less buying power, you're selling that bar of gold for $1,400 in now the equal the value should equal out because of inflated prices, but at least it's an inflation hedge and it could outperform inflation. Inflation. If I'm trying to learn her, uh, you know how our parents always tell us, save your money. Right. And you should, but kind of putting money in the savings account is almost at this point because our government is crazy is uh, kind of pointless because it doesn't do anything for you once it's in. It's actually a loser if you're putting. Yeah. yeah like so. You have five thousand dollars in the savings account. Great on you. Right. 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 Sure. Yeah, and inflation is actually is is speeding up. Uh, our Fed chair Jerome Powell said about two weeks ago now that. Inflation uh, is necessary, and, and we need to do more, more inflationary things. Uh, they're worried about deflation happening, and deflation impacts those with assets, meaning asset prices come down. It's a great thing for the majority of people because we get to buy things cheaper, but if you're an elite or you're rich and you see your asset prices go down, you don't like it, so you have to talk to your buddies in government to get them to increase inflation. 
I'm being 100% real. Why is the stock market up right now when unemployment's extremely high and we've had a body blow to the economy? The reason why the stock market's high is because we've printed so much money. Here's a stat for you on the, on this, in this vein. We printed more money, this is a true stat, printed more money in 2020 than existed in 2009. Think about that for a second. We've printed more money in 2020 than existed in 2009. So what? <laughs> no, it just says that we're not like that, but right. It, it could be very painful for people that are not invested in appreciating assets. And so, just to speak briefly about Bitcoin, it is the new kid on the block. Good place to start. Do you have Cash App? Go to Cash App and just go to the Bitcoin tab and just go down to the very bottom and it'll say my first Bitcoin. And it's just a little educational PowerPoint. That's a good place to start just to learn about it. Um, I don't advocate people to buy things they don't like or understand, but um, it's basically a digital version of gold and silver. Um, and um, the main difference is if you buy silver and gold, which I have in the past and I still have some, like I said, I don't have any gold at the moment, I sold it for Bitcoin, but uh, if you buy silver and gold, what happens is you take ownership of that and in order to sell it, you've got to either go to somebody locally to sell it and negotiate a price or you sell it to an online seller, and then you have to get a label, pay for, the, pay for the shipping, take it to a shipping location, and it's a process. And then when they receive it, they have to verify it and then send you some money. Well, in order to like streamline that process, you can buy and sell Bitcoin instantly. And so and it, it settles in a very – it might take a week to settle a gold or silver transaction, whereas it might take you know, just a few minutes to settle a Bitcoin transaction. So – um, just, I advise all my students to learn about this stuff because I think um, this is going to be a part of the Internet of Money. And if we all agree that the Internet and the digital future is going to be a major part of our lives, would you agree with that? That we're going to go more and more like, um, I, I was listening to a podcast yesterday by, and there was a guy there who's a cyberneticist. He, he does artificial intelligence research. He said, and he believes strongly in the next 30 to 50 years that humans will have cybernetic integration, basically microchips in your brain. And instead of having to hold a phone and make a phone call or look at the internet, you can think those thoughts and it will... I know it's crazy, it's scary to think of. It scares me to think about that. And I like reject, like my, my, I cringe to think about it. But you know, every technological evolution that we've gone through there's been people that said that this is the end of times, you know, like this is when the car was created. Why do I need a car? I have a perfectly good horse over here. Uh, and so every evolution of technology leads to crisis and leads to revolutions. Um, I believe in the next 50 to 100 years, there'll be, there won't be, we won't look at race as in black and white or all the races we have on earth. It'll be three races. There'll be humans, there'll be cybernetically enhanced humans, and there'll be androids. And those will be the three races on Earth, basically. So you'll have humans that you interact with, and you'll have these other two species that you interact with, people that have cybernetic enhancements. But I think the first step will be um, better versions of organs. Like, you'll get better versions of an artificial heart and lungs and things like that, and then there'll be some... I think... Yeah, well, I think, like, instead of having chips in your brain, you'll have attachments that you'll wear that type into your thoughts and they already do that with people who have hearing aids. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, yeah. So now instead like 
There's this. I've seen it. Yeah. She's had a hearing aid all of her life. Now, if you have babies and your baby's born deaf, like deaf, before they get to first grade, they do the they call it colloquial implant. Cochlear implant. Yeah. That one, and they put it inside their ears, and it's as if they were they grow up pretty much and never be deaf. Where my sister, she's thirty two. She just got hers in the last year. Right. She spent her whole life being deaf. Right. And now. She freaks out because she can hear like things that sound normal to us. Like I can hear the, the air coming off that computer. Right. That freaks her out because she can never hear that before. Driving in the car, you know how you can hear sure. the cars going past you. So at 30 something years old, she's just now hearing those signs. Right. Sounds. And it's kind of funny with how not, because she's like, what's that? I'm like, that's just what a car horn sounds like. She never, 30 years old, she's never heard a car horn. Well, I've right. seen, I mean, I've, I've watched on TikTok where people are, are deaf and they finally get the cochlear implant. Right. And That's, people comment and they're like, brush your hair. Like, just listen to yourself, brush your hair. Or, like, click buttons on the TV remote. And they're, they're like, you can see them like, holy cow, right. like, your hair makes noise. <laughs> yeah. No, but so she just, my um, other sister had a baby. That was the first time. She had a child. That was the first time hearing a baby cry. Yeah. She could never hear. That's amazing. She, and she had right. she was like, so I never heard these sounds. Like, you know, babies cool. They make little sounds with their lips. She never heard those sounds before. She she had always used her sense of sight and smell. So she would smell her baby's breath. Right. Smell that she was hungry. She would smell the diaper. Uh, she would smell the diaper from right. a million miles away, honestly. But I think it's pretty cool. That is very cool. Uh, I think the go-between for this technology I'm talking about is going to be virtual reality. And we're going to have more and more augmented reality. When you've seen it, like the apps that are AR apps and stuff, yeah. you can have a lot more of that kind of stuff. And I think the internet in the next 10 to 20 years will be everybody puts on a VR headset. You go to a virtual mall or a virtual lounge. Instead of having to go have a drink with somebody at a, at a physical bar, you can go have a virtual conversation in a... Well, so... I, I can see both sides of this. I can see that being as a, as a gateway to lead to in-person connections. Uh, I didn't realize this, but I think there's a stat out there that says about half of the marriages now are from online dating to begin with. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Like, so, yeah, uh, I've met several couples, and I'm like, where'd you meet? And it was like OkCupid okay, or another app that led them to, to each other. And so, yeah, Farmers Only. I love that commercial, by the way. I hadn't seen it lately, but um, so I can see a, a scenario where people will go to a virtual lounge and they will interact, and the people in this particular lounge are all but looking I for. So I see like people, you know, you dating a man virtually for a year, you turn out to be a psychopath and cut your legs off when you found a Yeah. Like that scares me. There's, there's going to be opportunities in all aspects of this for, like, there'll be, some, there'll be a service there that does vetting, for example. Like, mm-hmm. so. If you go to this particular lounge, you'll know, you can look at user profiles and it will be verifiable information. Like there'll be a, a foolproof way to verify that, hey, this is, this, you're not getting catfished. This is who it is. <laughs> right. Yeah. This, this person signed in. Like we talk, you talked about Bitcoin briefly. There's this uh, blockchain technology and blockchain allows you to put in things that are locked into a sequence online and uh, immutable, unchangeable. And so I can see it where somebody has to sign like a transaction to go into this lounge and them possessing that signature verifies that user as 
who they say they are. So what were you going to say, Ashton? I'm sorry. Um, I did some work with a photographer, and her and her now husband dated for seven years. Wow. Only online. Exclusively online. Exclusively wow. Exclusively online. They got married last right. June, I think, and they're living in Amsterdam together now. Yeah. That's she, awesome. I mean, she was telling me, like, it was just so... It was, she did never saw it coming and stuff like that. I've had friends in the past that were really good online friends only. I've never met them in real life. Yeah. I met a guy named Justin who is a lawyer up in the Boston area. met a guy named Geoff who lives in San Diego, California. Mm-hmm. And I, I met a guy named uh, Kevin who lives in Arizona. And all four of us were really tight in this online forum and, and talked a lot and interacted. And we eventually got moved, graduated to conference calls where we were calling and talking to each other and stuff. But I've never, ever laid idols on these people in real life. And we still occasionally text and check in with each other. But that's so cool that I have digital-only friends that I've never, you know, seen in real life. So, all right. Anything else we want to add to the conversation? Great starters. I love talking about stuff like that. Uh, And I'm very happy that you're thinking about hard assets in this time of inflation because now's a good time to be buying gold, silver, Bitcoin, hard assets. Well, the only way you go from being paycheck to paycheck to being wealthy is to change the paradigm. You've got to do this. And what I mean by that is you have to look at what people that have money are doing versus what you're doing. And people that have money save and invest, right? And people that don't have money buy and you get their money and spend it all on consumable items, you know. And so you've got to have the discipline to start. Okay, if you, if you feel like you don't have a lot of money, you got to say, I've got to, I'm going to take 1% of whatever money I get and start saving and investing, well, you know. My age is, I say, skip one Skip one nail point, exactly. Right. Right. That's it, yeah. Right. Sure, yeah. Well, let's, let's just, like, if you said, like, right now, Apple stock, I don't know where it's at, but let's say it's uh, 131, thank you. So let's say that you did 65 bucks a month that you're going to save and commit to. That's only, it's less than 20 a week. And what ends up happening is over two months, you get one share. Over a year, you get six shares. Ten years, that's 60 shares. Having 60 shares of Apple stock is good. And it went, guess what? Apple did a 5X this past 10 years, meaning it, it went a 500% return in addition to the, the dividends it pays out. So, I mean, you gotta, that's the way you got to look at it. And once you get one, like, saving investing thing going, you start to look at another and another and another. And before you know it, you start to surround yourself with appreciating assets versus liabilities. Um, I've read a lot about money and money managers over the years, and things that give you a return are considered assets. Things that, you, that cost you money are liabilities. So invest in assets, not liabilities. So awesome stuff. I'm going to jump into the chapter. This is uh, chapter five on ethics, corporate responsibility, and sustainability. Um, what is what are ethics? What does that mean? Morals and principles that you live by. Yeah, it's a system of morals and principles. What about corporate responsibility? What do you think that means? Okay, I like that response. It's the it's the lie businesses tell, right? You, you're exactly right. Um, I think a lot of businesses do it because they feel obligated to do it, which is I pretend to care. I pretend that I'm going to give, I'm going to make, you know, take $90 million out of your community in revenue 
but I'm, I'm going to give back 5000 and that makes me look like I'm a, a generous person. But, yeah, but we're giving you $90 million revenue. So what, what's up with that 5000 That's not, you know, it's not even close. So, yeah, uh, corporate responsibility is a necessary evil. Consumers want to buy, I say evil. Uh, not evil. Well, it's, it's a necessary evil in that corporations feel obligated to do it because their consumers like to buy from companies that give back. But it's evil because it's not genuine, you know. I mean, it's just like an obligation. It's a tax write-off. And uh, it's just, yeah, I just don't feel like a lot of corporate stuff. Now, some of it, like um, one of the best ones, in my opinion, it may be part of the evil thing we're talking about, is uh, Firehouse Subs. I feel like they do a good job building morale and giving money that supports fire departments, you know, because the guys that started it were fire people or firemen. So I like that. But some of them, you know, I feel like it's just uh, lip service, you know. So we're going to go through. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the guiding questions, but basically we're going to be looking at ethics and corporate responsibility. So ethics are essentially uh, involving how we act, live, and lead our lives and treat others. That is generally what ethics are considered to be. Our choices and decision-making processes and our moral principles and values that govern our behavior regarding what is right and wrong are also a part of ethics. The great thing about ethics uh, is that we as human beings, somebody we were talking about over the weekend, if you didn't teach children what's the difference between right and wrong, would they know? I'm watching a science fiction show, Raised by Wolves, on HBO right now. It's about androids. Have you seen it? No? I don't think so? Okay. It's about humanity's in trouble on Earth because the Earth is uh, very polluted and we've gone through some major, another great world war. And so in order to fix that problem, they sent two androids to a faraway planet about 100 years from here. And they've got some embryos. And the idea is, since humans can't live 100 years to make it to that far galaxy or planets, that the androids could just take that trip and then when they get there, raise, you know, fertilize these embryos and, and raise them. And so that's what they did. And they end up trying to create another population of humans and start over kind of. I won't get into all the spoilers, but the reason why that conversation came up is that if, how can an android who is a program really teach ethics and morality to a human being? How can that, how could that be so? I don't know. Yeah. Right. It may be why the show is called Raised by Wolves because if you're raised by wolves, you're feral. You don't have the same ethics that you would have as being raised by humans. So, yeah, be, ethics and morals, I think, are uniquely human. That's what gives us part of our humanity is the, the fact that we can process, we're sentient, and we can... Uh, have these values that we possess. Normative ethics refer to the field of ethics concerned with our asking how should and ought we live our uh, live and acts. Business ethics is applied ethics that focus on real world situations and uh, the context and environment in which transactions occur. How should we apply our values to the way we conduct business? Uh, and ethics is kind of a frustrating thing for me. I love talking about ethics, but the frustration is no matter how much we teach and talk about ethics, no matter how much people know things that are right and things that are wrong, there are so many people that are willing to push that aside and say, I'm still going to do the wrong thing because I'm going to get ahead. You know, give you one example. This is a very frustrating example for me. The guy's name is, oh gosh, 
it's just going to leave me. Um, they call him the, the farmer bro, Martin Scarelli. Has anybody heard of this guy? He, you'll know the example. He started a hedge fund that, that basically started a pharmaceutical company within it. And the sole objective of the company was to buy drugs and raise the price extremely high. So he bought a drug called Daraprim, and that drug is specifically used for a, a disorder called toxoplasmosis that affects expecting mothers. They're about to have a baby. They have this toxoplasmosis, and the only drug on earth that fixes this is Daraprim. So he took the price of Daraprim from like $13.50 a pill to $750, $750 a pill. And so, yeah, $13.50 to $750. And he, they were like, they, they, it just went nuts when people found out this is what happened. Hospitals couldn't stock, afford to stock it, you know. It went, so they got this guy on the news. They pulled him in front of the Senate panel to talk to him about it. And he had no ethical issues at all in doing this. He said, look, you know, a lot of companies do this kind of stuff, and we're trying to fund new research, which is a complete lie, you know, basically. And so eventually he got arrested for insider trading or securities fraud. Um, he had a several different charges, but he got put in prison for seven years. And he's just a really bad actor, horrible character. In fact, I'll send you a link to a podcast that tells the story. But guess what? He's worth like $27 million. Yeah, when he gets out of jail, he's still got that $27 million that he's just got sitting in the corner. And he's just going to go back to being a jerk. And, you know, just talking smack and, and, and being a terrible person. But was it worth it? You know, was it worth it to do something unethical, to, to go to prison for probably four to seven years by the time it's all said and done, get out and then have the $27 million? And for a lot of people, it is worth it. You know, it's, you know would, you, would you do something unethical? But there's no telling the impact of that decision to do that. I mean, did people die from not being able to access that drug or... Did they get extremely high medical bills that they had to declare bankruptcy because of? I mean, you know, so, yeah, there's just a lot of second and third and fourth order effects of decisions we make. We don't always see what the ramifications of every decision we make. That's why it's important that we try to do the least harm and make good quality ethical decisions because we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen from an from outcome, you know. If I'm a horrible teacher and give you guys terrible information – and put you on a path that I shouldn't put you on uh, with, with just, like if I, if I came in here and taught you how to be a jerk manager and you go out there and you start being a jerk manager, there's going to be ramifications from that, you know? I mean, I would rather you be a more of a knowledge-based manager where you look at things objectively and try to make rational, logical decisions that are information-based. That's the kind of managers I want to help uh, inspire and, and grow. And so the next thing to talk about is these different levels uh, of ethical analysis. And a lot of things I talk about in business management, people need to take time to gather information and uh, try to gather as much quality information as you can before making decisions. And that also applies to the ethical lens. Descriptive, different societies have different moral standards. What is correct in the United States may be incorrect in a different country. The way of doing business, a way of talking, a way of interacting with each other. Um, normative, this action is wrong uh, in this society, but right in another. You know, the idea of uh, childhood marriage in the United States is very taboo, right? Like, you know, marrying somebody that's 13 or 14 years old, not cool. Guess what, though? That used to be a normal thing. Uh, in another society, that might be a normal thing. To me, not cool, right? I've got, I've got kids, you know, I'm like, 
uh, you know, try to try to wait, you know, until because I realized when I was 20, I'm still very young, you know, like, I mean, I wasn't ready to get married at 20. I didn't. I got married at 26. But uh, I think, you know, but in our society, we've seen an evolution, whereas kids used to get married at 13, 14, 15, 16 range. And now as we've gotten, quote unquote, industrialized, um, people are uh, doing more knowledge-based work, and so people wait later to get married. And another thing that's a contribute to that is longer life expectancy. You know, used to be people lived to what, 40, 50, 60, and now it's 60, 70, 80. And so as life expectancy increases, people can say, well, I could take more time to do more things and, and have a career and things like that. So, um, and that is a kind of a universal thing we're seeing around the globe. There's a book called uh, Factfulness by Hans Rowling. I read it a year ago. And it shows that in other countries, um, people that are entering the workforce, uh, one of the m- big factors in the book was um, birth rates. And it said like in, in, in developing countries or pre-industrialized countries, women tend to have larger amounts of children. They have, you know, on average about five children. And the reason being is because infant mortality is higher. So if they know, you know, if I have five kids, they may not think this cognizantly, but uh, or, or consciously, but if they have five kids, one or two of them may pass away. And so having a larger amount of children uh, lends to a lot more of them surviving, you know, or having children that survive, but also uh, to help with agriculture-based type work, you know. And so as we industrialize, women more and more enter the workforce, they enter knowledge-based work, and have less children. In the United States, it's about two and a half kids uh, on average. And I won't be surprised if that drops even lower uh, in the coming generations, maybe goes, you know, two kids or less, you know. So so a lot of people I know are talking about not having kids, you know, and a lot of ki- people in my generation never had kids, you know, and they don't intend to. So all of my, all of my close, close friends, friends and, and my group of like six right. other girls, none of them want kids. Right. The kids, I mean, like, I get it. I love my children, but kids, you're, you're signing up for a big deal when you when you have kids, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a lot of responsibility. Um, there's a lot of costs associated, and you're basically saying I'm willing to sacrifice my personal time for and, and invest that in others. Don't get me wrong; I get a lot of fulfillment out of my kids. I love my children, but it, there's times when it does like it, you know it is a burden is not the right word, but it's a challenge. You know, I guess that's the right word. So, burden's the right word. Right. Yeah, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll yeah I'll say too with the kids thing. Um, you know, I, the best advice I give can give parents, and I'm not an expert. I've made mistakes. Is just love your children. That's all, I mean. That's all there is. You know, love your children. That's that's I mean because they forget all the other mess, but they remember the love. You know, in marketing, we when people do marketing, they're trying to make an emotional impact. Most commercials are trying to make you laugh or make you cry. They're trying to hit your heart or hit you, hit your funny bone. And they do that because they're trying to make it memorable. You know, I don't remember that specific commercial, but I remember there was something funny that happened. And so kids remember the love. You can see on this diagram, though, it all starts with the ethics of the individual. If the ethics of the individual are skewed, then that affects the organization. It affects the system. So when the ethics of individuals in a country kind of get off-center, you get a little scrambled, 
it has a uh, cascading effect of the entire system. And so it's important for individuals to understand the importance of having a strong ethical framework uh, and also to understand that that has ramifications for society. This is a good thing to talk about, ethical dilemmas. These are situations and predicaments in which there's not an optimal or desired choice to be made between two options, neither of which solves an issue or delivers an opportunity that is ethical, often originated and occurs from an unawareness of how to sort out and think through potential consequences of our actions or inactions. Becoming aware and conscious of our values is a first step towards being able to act ethically and responsibility in order to prevent or lessen harm to others or ourselves. And so I love talking about ethical dilemmas. Give you an easy example. Would you steal food to feed your family? See? Right. So, like, we know stealing's wrong, but we also know our family being hungry is also not, it's also bad, right? And so, like, some of you would never consider murdering somebody, but you would to save your own life, right? That's the ethical limit you go through, uh, and you don't really, you're, in the time that something's happening, somebody's trying to attack you, you know, you have to make a decision, you know, right then, you know, am I going to let this person hurt me or am I going to defend myself, you know? So these are ethical dilemmas that sometimes play out unconsciously, but other times you have time to think about it. Yes, ma'am. Okay, so really dumb question, not dumb question. No. Question, right? So What's the example? The when you said the guy that up the price of the pill. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And then he turns himself into a millionaire. Right. Ethically, he could say, "Yep, you are a pretty grown dude, and maybe you overdid it, but maybe his mindset at that time was, 'Hey, I'm going to do something really bad, and a whole lot of strange people that I do not know are going to be hurt by this, but long term, my kids will probably never have to work a day in their lives.'" Right. So, yeah. So, ethics are very much um, a black and white thing. And um, ethics is really comes down to consensus, meaning that what the majority of people view it as being. Because I can walk down the road and talk to 100 people, give them an ethical dilemma, and get a very broad spectrum. And this is what it would look like. This is what the outcome would look like meaning that the majority of people would probably say this is the truth. Mm -hmm. You'd have some people over here saying, no, this extreme example is what should happen. And then other people would say, no, this is what should happen. So uh, in the example of uh, like the attacker, you know, some people say you should defend yourself but not kill the guy. Some people say, no, kill him every time, right? And other people say, well, I might just get hurt a little bit, but I'm not going to harm them. So you're going to have all kinds of spectrum of responses. And from each vantage point, they consider their response ethical. They consider it their truism, you know. And so uh, that's why we have a lot of turmoil in our society because you've got a spectrum of viewpoints on things. Um, but the way we, I mean, there's, there's laws that we have that, we can, that are the law, but some people consider them unjust or unethical. And then uh, there's ethical things that we consider that are not laws or the, vol the laws view it as illegal. And so 
uh, laws do change over time. That's what, you know, that's the good thing about our system is that laws that used to be on the books that, uh, that we considered at the time as the, I guess, the majority of people, we viewed those laws as legal and ethical, but over time we might view those as unethical, so they'll change that law and get it off the books, you know. So um, these things do evolve over time. Society changes over time and our viewpoints on certain things. Um, uh, a good one is marijuana. They're talking about that right now. Um, they're talking about voting on it in the House to legalize it. Um, I don't know all the details. I just saw the headlines and I read a little bit. But the they're saying that, you know, this this conversation about it, there's a lot of spectrum of viewpoints on it, right? And some people say, absolutely not. It's a gateway drug. It leads to other drugs. It causes all kinds of problems, yada, yada, yada. And then on the other side of the spectrum is, that, well, it has these good health benefits. You know, it's good for these reasons. And then a bunch of people in the middle that have all kinds of spectrum of ideas. So you have to understand that ethics exists in a spectrum. It's a continuum. And um, if you do something that is unethical and Ill- or if if you do something that you view as ethical but is currently illegal and you get in trouble for it, you better have a really good argument when you go to court to explain to the judge and the jury of why you did it because these things do happen. A good example, this is a fictional account. Did anybody ever see that story or the the movie A Time to Kill? I read the book too with um, John Grisham and had Samuel Jackson in it. You remember this? Mm-hmm. In that story, the father, his daughter's raped by, and then he decides... I'm going to go kill these guys that raped my daughter. Well, in his mind, this was the ethical thing he should do. It was illegal, vigilante justice, but in his mind it was ethical. And they went to trial, and in this fictional universe, they decided that you know he shouldn't be prosecuted because of what he did. So, like, but it could have gone another way, too. He could have been in prison the rest of his life or got the death penalty. So our, our system of justice and our a way that we view ethics is very fluid. And there's a ton of ethical dilemmas we could go through, and we'll, we'll continue to revisit them over the course of uh, the semester. There are some terminal values, which are desired goals, objectives in states and indivi- that individuals wish to pursue. And then there's instrumental values. Uh, these are the behaviors we have in order to get these terminal values. So example of terminal values are higher levels of freedom, security, pleasure, social recognition, Friendship, accomplishment, comfort, adventure, equality, freedom, and happiness. Example of instrumental values are these are the things that help us get there are being helpful, honest, courageous, independent, polite, responsible, capable, ambitious, loving, self-contained, and forgiving. You know, there's this example or this saying that the good guy never wins or nice guys finish last, or ladies, uh, guys and women. I don't know. You know, I mean, what do you guys think about? Do you have to be a Martin Scarelli to be a bad guy and to get the money and, and even if you think so? I think you gotta go based off that it'll be nice to sit and play like, no, you can be a wonderful person and like still be whatever. And that's partially true. You don't gotta be that bad, but I think when it comes down to it, you have to be cutthroat, just period. And if you ain't willing to do it, at least hire somebody else right. to do it. Like you get you get an accountant who doesn't sure. or someone else. You don't have to be like $27 million worth of kills, 
I get it though, yeah. No, I, I think you, I don't think you can, I don't think you, I don't think you can be a perfectly moral, ethical, always the right thing person and be as successful as a person who is willing to do the wrong thing for the right reason. I look at successful people and I, I've studied a lot of successful entrepreneurs and, and successful people and almost all of them have a little something that was kind of, I don't know, shady, but um, I don't know, not not quite up and up 100%, you know, like, I mean, and there's examples all over the place, but just like uh, the way Microsoft really got its start was that it stole an idea for the graphic user interface from Apple. The way Apple got its big start, I mean, it's, it got started, but it stole some technology from Xerox. And so, you know, there's there's some of that kind of stuff, you know, in the DNA of, of any major corporation you look at. So, I mean, and it's not absolute, it's not every single one, but I think uh, you can do things right and be successful, but, uh, I don't condone, by the way, like being shady at all. <laughs> I think people should do walk the straight and narrow. But it does frustrate you when you see people like the Skrillies of the world uh, getting the $27 million, you know. Yeah, so I get it. But on the flip side of that coin, he is in prison right now. So, you know. Yeah, I mean, you got to you gotta, you take the risk and then hope it's not that bad. Like, I, but I, I don't think you, you could be like, like my mom is a fly right person. She's never going to do anything wrong. Like, she just don't live like that. But then she married her opposite. My dad is like, uh, hey, if I got to do it, it's okay. As long as I'm willing to take whatever comes on the chin of, the chin of it. You got to be able to handle it. Right. If you know you're doing the wrong thing, just don't start crying when your karma comes back to you. So, like, now he's, like, old and sick and people, probably because he did a lot of bad stuff. My mom's been pretty good health. But in, in, I, I think you got to be willing, like, just a little bit, but nothing. <laughs> I hear you. Let me talk about these two things real quick. Utilitarianism versus universalism. Um, utilitarianism is basically uh, this, if the action is morally right, it's, and if it produces the greatest good for the greatest number of people. So we're looking at um, basically the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few in that. So that's what utilitarianism means. Uh, so if, if I do this thing that hurts a percentage of the population but it helps a lot of people then the ends justify the means you know so like basically if i if i if i create this uh chemical in my plants and i dump it dump some waste in the river and it makes some kids sick you know it makes some families sick but you know all these other people benefit from it you know i rationalize that i did a good thing because the net is positive the net but on the other side, you, you have to look at it from a universalism standpoint, meaning if if it harms one person, then that's not a good thing. You know, So that's basically the differentiator between the two. Um, universalism is the principle that considers the welfare and risk of all parties and when considering outcomes, not just a net positive. But in our, in our system of government we have now, we, have to, the, we very much have a utilitarianism, meaning that mm-hmm. we're trying to do the least harm for the least amount of people. Uh, that's what is the idea. Like, we know we can't make everybody happy, but we're trying to do the least harm to the least amount of people. Uh, and so, you know, sometimes it doesn't work that way, but that's just uh, kind of where we're at right now. Because uh, we know that sometimes we make a decision, like if we make a decision on taxes, 
we know some people are going to get burned, and we know some people are just going to help. So that's kind of uh, where, our, where we're at right now. Let's talk about rights and justice. This is a good conversation. Um, uh, so legal rights are entitlements that you have. So you've probably heard this, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, right? That's, that's, these are the rights that you have. These are inalienable. They, they thought these rights were so sacred that they're inalienable. They're born into our DNA uh, as who we are as human beings. Uh, and we have this Bill of Rights. You've probably heard about that. Um, the right to um, property, the, life to, the right to speech, to religion, um, the right to keep and bear arms, all these different things, freedom of the press. And so uh, these are rights that we have as citizens of the United States. And it's important we don't take those rights for granted because over time what can happen if we trade safety and security, we sacrifice liberty. We think, you know, well, I'm going to give up some of my liberty so I can have more safety and security. But that's a very, I don't want to say slippery slope because there's fallacies about slippery slope fallacy, but meaning that that's not necessarily an accurate description of what happens. But we need to cling to our liberties. We need to make sure that we, if somebody's trying to infringe upon our liberty, and you've seen some infringement, you know, happening in recent times, you know, people have a right to peacefully assemble. You know, if you want to assemble, that's a right that you have in our Constitution. Um, you know, that I, I, don't, I don't see, you know, a problem with, if you want to go stand in a public place and, and have a quote-unquote peaceful protest, now, the writing is not good. You know, if you're, if you're destroying property, that's illegal. That's also unethical. Um, I don't agree with that type of, uh, uh, I guess, there's a difference between writing and protesting, though. And protesting and peacefully assembling, those are two separate things. So justice has at least four major components. All individuals should be treated equally. Justice is served when all persons have equal opportunities and advantage uh, through their positions and offices to society's opportunities and burdens. Fair decisions and practices, procedures, and agreements among parties should be practiced. And punishment is served to someone who has inflicted harm on another, and compensation is given to those who, for past harms or injustice, committed against them. And so justice is one of those funny words. Uh, we think we know what justice means, but it's very much in the gray area of ethics as well. Justice, um, it's, it's our legal system, the, the purpose for our legal system is to uh, interpret and act upon the law, not necessarily produce justice, you know. So, like, it's possible for somebody to go through our legal system that has committed a wrong and not have justice served from our perspective. But, like, if somebody goes through, is accused of a crime, they, they, the, the majority of people think, okay, it's obvious this person did it, but then they go through the process and they're found not guilty. Well, the interpretation is justice was served, but it may not be the type, the brand of justice that that we want. You know, so let's talk about virtue ethics and ethical relativism real quick. Virtue ethics is based on character traits such as being truthful, practicing wisdom, happiness, uh, flourishing, and well-being. Focuses on the type of person we ought to be, not on specific actions that should be taken. Grounded in good character motives and core values, the principle is best exemplified by those whose example show the virtues to be emulated. Somebody that's virtual, virtual uh, virtue uh, in leadership, somebody that we look up to as an example that's legitimate. Like, man, I was like upset when Bill Cosby got in trouble, you know. <laughs> Being real, like, he's somebody I looked up to my whole life, you know, and... 
when it found out that, you know, some of my heroes as a kid turned out not to be heroes, you know, I'm like, not cool, right? And so, but up until the point where he was the bad guy, he had really good virtues. Now, if I find out, like, Mr. Mr. Rogers is like the devil, I'm going to be really upset, you know, like, so that's going to be super disappointing. And so, but somebody like Mr. Rogers is, like, puts forth these virtue ethics, and he just does it in such a passive way. He emulates, he, he, he demonstrates the type of behavior and acceptance and peacefulness we should have in the world. So last thing I'll talk about today is ethical relativism. It's not really a principle to be followed or modeled. It's oriented uh, that many use quite frequently. Ethical relativism, relativism holds that people set their own moral standards for judging their actions. The only the individual self-interest and values are relevant for judging his or her behavior, meaning that I don't need a standard from society. I set my own ethical standard. Moreover, moral standards, according to this principle, vary from one culture to another. This is where you get the expression, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. And so Ryan in North Carolina, USA, may act differently than Ryan in another country may act, you know. And it's, maybe it's a freer society. I don't see me ever going to, like, uh, like, uh, like a rave or a party, you know, where I'm dancing on the floor and breakdancing and stuff. But, you know, I don't know. But I can see, like, how um, some societies, like, if I went and lived in Spain, for example, or Portugal or Madrid or something like that, um, I might uh, have a, a, a more relaxed schedule where, you know, I would take a siesta after lunch and not feel the pressure that some, some, sometimes we feel in America. So uh, lifestyles and ethics are relative. So questions on any of this? All right. I will wrap up the chapter on Wednesday, and I'll post that for you guys to check out. Uh, go ahead and be doing the reading. Go ahead and work on the homework. If you guys have any questions, shoot me an email. If not, I plan to see you guys next Monday, okay? All right, thanks, everybody. Have a good week. Thank you so much for spending some time with me on the podcast. I hope you got something out of it and learned something that you can use in the world and share with others. If you did like it, please indicate so by liking sharing, or going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a review. Until next time, I wish you well.